You can open to John 1 this morning. We've been in Luke for over a year now. I thought it'd be good to look at a different gospel here for our Christmas sermon. Mark begins his gospel with the public ministry of Jesus. Luke backs up a little further and begins with the announcement of the coming incarnation and in a comparison of John the Baptist and Jesus, all the while demonstrating the superiority of Jesus. Matthew backs up a little bit further and he begins with a genealogy that begins with Abraham and traces the line of Christ from Abraham down through David. John begins before them all. He takes us all the way back to what we might call eternity past. Before creation, Jesus is there. You see, each gospel, it's not to say that John's better, the further back you go, the better. Each gospel has its own specific emphasis and purpose for which they were written. They work together to give us a full understanding, at least full in so much as we can grasp the nature and the deity and the work of Jesus Christ. They give us a full picture of Christ. But John's purpose is given to us explicitly towards the end of the book when he says, These things are written unto you um, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So if John's purpose as he sets out is to prove that Jesus is God, that he is the Christ, and that we may have life through the Son of God, we're not surprised then that he backs all the way up to eternity past. So we have three points this morning. We're going to take sort of a larger chunk of passage, so um, we're, we're going to try to get the, the big idea of what's going on here in these 18 Verses. We see first that Jesus is the revelation of God in those first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. John begins there, in the beginning was the Word. Before we get into that phrase, the beginning, we should consider this title for Jesus, the Word. Why would, why would John, when he's putting together his gospel and seeking to introduce us to the person of Christ, choose this word, Word? Well, if we, if we think about the, the Old Testament, and we think about the Word of God, we see in the very beginning that God is creating through His Word. So it's through the Word that God creates. He speaks in Genesis chapter 1, and it happens. What's it? Well, the sun and the moon and the stars and everything we see. Psalm 33, 6 makes it even more explicit. By the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So the word creates in the Old Testament. We also see that the word is the, the means by which God reveals himself, even in the Old Testament. It is his self-revelation. It is the way he chooses to communicate with his creation. 
The common refrain that you know and you've likely read in the prophets is what? The word of the Lord came to Jonah or Jeremiah or Amos. How does God choose to reveal himself? Through this word. The word of the Lord, then, is also found in context of deliverance. Take Psalm 107. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So the word is God's revelation of himself in the Old Testament. And we see that God, when God reveals himself, he is the creating and delivering God. So we see that it is an appropriate title for Jesus. He is the perfect self-revelation and demonstration of the power of God. We might think about it this way. What, what, do, what do words do? They communicate something about us. You, know, you can look at a man, you can look at a woman, and you can guess some things. Maybe they have a Seattle Seahawks jersey on, and you can say, oh, they must like football at least. They must like the Seattle Seahawks. But it's not until, and I don't know anybody, why anybody would, but it's not until they open their mouths that you actually get to know the person. That you actually learn something about that person. No, I hate the Seahawks. Somebody gave me this as a birthday present, they might say. Now you know something. You've learned something. You're not just observing by sight. So with Jesus, he is the perfect revelation of God. He is the Word of God. He is the perfect representation, the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his nature. He is the Word. He is communicating God to us. And so then you ask, what qualifies Christ to be the Word? What qualifies Christ to be this revelation? Well, this Word, Jesus, was in the beginning. You know, it'd be really fun to kind of like tease out, because you don't really learn until verse 14 that we're talking about Jesus here, but we know that the Word here is Jesus. And He was in the beginning. Well, the beginning of what? Well, There's a couple clues, and it's not hard to discern, but there's a couple clues that help us figure it out. First, that word beginning is oftentimes even translated origin. It's the beginning of something. It recalls then the origin of creation. Even in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, it says, from the beginning of creation, from the origin of everything that is, in the beginning of that, Christ already was he already existed he predates the origin of all things even the wording itself reminds us of the wording of genesis 1 1 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth so john is is cluing us in here that jesus predates creation prior to all that you saw on your way into church this morning the rocks and the hills. He predates all of that. He predates the sun and the moon and the stars. He predates the universe. He predates all of creation. It's interesting then that Jesus, this, this word, the Son of God, he was in the beginning, 
But then we see that he, he is distinguishable from the Father, and, and by implication from the Spirit, but also representative, also the same as God. So he's distinguishable, he's with God, and he is God. He's distinguishable from the Father and the Spirit, yet he is one in essence with the Father and the Spirit. He is a tri-unity. There are three distinct persons who eternally exist in one God. You know, if, if all you had was that middle phrase in verse 1, and the word was with God, you might be excused in believing that there are two gods. But if you take the whole phrase together, we see this great doctrine of the unity of God and also the distinct persons of the Father and the Son. And again, we'll be introduced later if we're walking through John, the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is distinguishable. He is with God. And He is or was God. And that was is not like He used to be. Now He's no longer. This is at this point, before creation, He already was God. Only the doctrine of the Trinity accounts for this verse. He's with God and He was God. That he can be alongside God and he can be God himself. One author said it this way, The word does not by himself make up the entire Godhead. Nevertheless, the divinity that belongs to the rest of the Godhead belongs to him. He is with God and he is God. Another one said, The word was with God, God's eternal fellow, and the word was God. God's own self. And as our minds explode, as we try to comprehend this doctrine of the Trinity, we can be comforted with the words of Augustine who said, if you understood him, he would not be God. Now we mean, obviously, completely, fully understand him. God has given us everything we need to know him and to know salvation. But if we could completely and fully understand him, he would not be God and we would not be creation. In the fourth century, there was a theological debate that was raging amongst the early church as they sought to clearly understand and articulate the person of Jesus Christ. And so many were pushing back at the, this early heresy called modalism, which you may have heard of. The modalists, they, they knew there was only one God, but then they couldn't figure out how there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So they said, you know what? Sometimes God appears in the mode of the Father. Sometimes God appears in the mode of the Son. Sometimes God appears in the mode of the Spirit. He just sort of manifests himself differently at different times. And that's wrong. We saw it in the baptism of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, that the Spirit descends, Jesus is baptized, the Father speaks from heaven, simultaneously three persons, yet there is one God. So along comes a man named Arius, and Arius says, I don't like modalism. I don't like the fact that maybe he appears this way and he appears this way. But he pushed back so hard that he himself found himself in heretical error. 
he argued his solution to modalism was Jesus was created. He said if Jesus was begotten, we just sang begotten, not created. If Jesus was begotten, then he had a beginning in existence. And from this it follows that there was a time when the Son was not. That was his solution to modalism, that God the Father created God the Son. We see that, that God's Word is so rich and it's so deep that in this one verse, John 1, 1, both modalism and Arianism are completely destroyed. Jesus was in the beginning. He was before creation. Yet He is God Himself. One theologian who argued against Arius, uh, Athanasius, said it this way, Those who maintain there was a time when the Son was not rob God of His Word like plunderers. God is... Jesus is God, and He is from the beginning. Not only was Jesus existent at creation, but He is the Creator of all things. Verse 3, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Not only was He present, He is the originator of all creation. Again, in Genesis, we see that God speaks and everything that is comes into existence. Here we learn that it is the Word, Jesus Christ, who is the active person in the Trinity creating. He is the active agent of creation. He is the one, Colossians 1 says, that through whom and for whom are all things. You know, verse 3, if we're talking about somebody arguing that Jesus was created, verse 3 explicitly teaches that Jesus is uncreated. As we walk through verse, chapter 1, verse 1, some of you are, are aware that a group like the Jehovah's Witnesses teach what Arius taught, that Jesus is a created being that he sort of assumes some kind of deity after his, some divinity, I should say, after his creation, but should not be called God. Some of you know that they have their own translation, and they take that Jesus was uh, a God. Jesus is a God. Some of you know that That's based on the fact that there's no article in the Greek, and and you know all the grammatical arguments about an anarthrist noun there, and you you can articulate and you can argue with someone about why that's a bad translation, why their translation is a bad translation. It's not a God, it's the God. Some of you may have had these sort of arguments, but for for many this morning who had never heard of an an anarthrist noun, there's an easier way to demonstrate that Jesus is not a created being and is therefore God. Now those are good arguments. You you might want to study those arguments and have those on hand, but you can make the argument from verse 3. I read an article not too long ago that that said you you can actually just write this out on the back of a napkin. And if you grab the sheet for notes this morning. I put it on the back side there so you can take a look. 
the author was arguing that you can write at the top of your napkin everything that exists. So you're going to capture everything that exists. And underneath that, then you have these two boxes. In one box, you say, okay, this is everything that has never come into being. In the other box, you say, everything that has come into being. And so, you, you might ask, okay, well, what do we put in the box? Everything that has never come into being. Well, that's only God. Only God has never come into being. And then you'd ask, well, well, what should we put in this other box? Everything that has come into being. Well, that's all of creation. Everything that had an origin. And then we can look back at verse 3 and say, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now tell me, where does Jesus belong? Does he belong in the box of everything that never came into being? Absolutely. Because he is the creator, the originator of everything that has come into being. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the originator of all creation, and therefore uncreated. What's so wise about God's word, and so good even about the gospel of John, and what's so brilliant about what he has done here is he has now laid the groundwork of how you and I should understand Jesus as you progress through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, that he is God in the flesh. The Word becoming flesh is God becoming flesh. The Word's compassion for the lost in the book of John as he weeps is God's compassion for the lost. The Word's sacrifice is God's sacrifice. He is the Word, the originator, the creator, the uncreated one. And in Him was life, and life was the light of men. As God, Jesus has life in Himself. He is life. All other life, whether it's you or your dog or a rodent or a tiny microbe, all of other life that we can fathom is dependent life. Without the creating and sustaining work of our Lord Jesus Christ, all of it ceases to exist in a moment. But God is different than us. He is not dependent on anyone or anything. He is life and is therefore the source of all life. Think of, again, the creation account in Genesis. Adam was formed from the dust of the ground and he breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living soul or living person. Christ is sufficient in and of himself and this self-sufficient Life of Christ, verse 5 says, shines a light in creation. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now remember, we're, we're, John's sort of working with this context of creation. So remember, when God created the heavens and the, the earth, they were formless, 
and they were void, and there was darkness over the face of the deep. And God spoke, let there be light, and there was light, and at the presence of the light, the darkness fled. Darkness cannot conquer when the light shines. So I think what John is doing is he's setting us up here, pointing us back to creation, back to creation, and then he's going to transition then to redemption. Like Jesus created light in the beginning of the world, and the darkness has not overcome it, the darkness cannot overcome it, so he enters creation as the light of the world to conquer the darkness that is sin and rebellion. He will accomplish redemption through his incarnation and through his sacrificial death, thus defeating darkness. That's where John goes next, that Jesus is the true light. Look there in verses 6 through 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Here, I think John's transitioning us to begin thinking about redemption there. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So God sends a messenger to bear witness about the light that is coming into the world. His name was John, and you likely know, not, not John the author of this gospel, John the Baptist, the one we've been learning about in Luke. He was to preach the coming of Christ. He was to prepare the people by calling them to repentance and announce the coming of Christ into the world. And the goal was that all might believe his preaching, that they might be prepared, that they might be ready, that they might have life as they receive Christ. And we know that John was not confused about his role. Some were confused about John. Some wondered if maybe John was the Christ. But John wasn't confused. John was clear about his role. He is not the Savior. My job, John says, is to announce the Savior. In fact, it's in John's Gospel that we get some of those great lines from John the Baptist. Even down there in verse 15. John cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. John was born first. John's public ministry began first. But Jesus is before him. He is supreme over John the Baptist. John also says in chapter 1 that he's unworthy to even untie the, the, the latch of Jesus's sandal. We also hear John the Baptist cry out upon seeing Jesus. He tells the crowd, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John says, in, in reference to Christ, I must decrease, but he must increase. So John witnesses to the light that has come into the world, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
So as the light of God shined in creation, causing the darkness to flee, so now Jesus would shine as the light of the world. He would shine light on everyone, it says, in his coming to earth. Now, what's amazing about this is when John uses that word world, he doesn't just mean God's creation. He's referring to sinful, rebellious creation that has arrayed themselves against God. Sin has corrupted God's creation. Most clearly, God's highest creation, mankind, stands in rebellion against their maker. The world here is man living under and in and loving and treasuring darkness. Set against God, loving the darkness and fleeing from the light. It's this world that Christ has come into and shine, and shine the light of God. So the light of God will shine in this dark, rebellious world what would prompt christ to enter this dark rebellious wicked creation what's the love of god the love of god would would require this john three sixteen. for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life so even if you think about that word world in John 3, it's not, hey, look, the, the, the world must be a pretty lovable place if Jesus would choose to enter this world. Instead, it's that God's love is so magnificent and it's demonstrated by him coming to this dark and rebellious and wicked world that he would come to you and I. You know, if you have small children or you are going to exchange presents this Christmas in some context where you have a little bit of authority to speak up and you get to say something ahead of time, uh, maybe, maybe this year, before tearing into all the presents, you might say something like this, you know, these, these gifts, they're, they're good and they're fun and God has given us good things for us to enjoy. But, but we recognize this morning as we go to open these presents that they point us to something even greater. That the true light of God has come into this world because He loves us. So when we say it's better to give than to receive, when you plead with your children, it's better to give than to receive. And as, as hard as that is for them to understand in their young minds, we are quoting our Lord Jesus Christ, who demonstrated through the giving of himself and God the Father giving of the Son, demonstrating that it's more blessed to give than to receive because we're following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It began in a manger as a helpless baby and it ends at a brutal cross. Maybe you could take some time this week or even Christmas morning to talk through this word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. What's interesting here, I alluded to it earlier, but this light, it shines indiscriminately. It shines on everyone. So what matters here in this text 
It is how you respond to the light. It's that the light is shining. The light of Jesus Christ has shined in creation, but there's two different ways that people respond to the light, which is Christ. You see, we can, we can reject the light. We see that in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world of sin did not recognize its creator. We've seen that even in Luke as the crowds whisper, isn't this the son of Joseph? Is this Mary's kid? They didn't recognize the creator had come into the world. Even Israel, he came unto his own and his own received him not. Even God's chosen people by and large rejected the light. Jesus came to his own, called out people, and they did not receive him. Now, we might grow discouraged at this point. And why is Jesus calm? Why has he shined the light or shown the light? I don't know. I'll have to figure out later if that's what's right. Or we can, so we can reject the light, or we can receive the light there in verse 13. I don't know why I turned my page. Or verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To those who receive the light, to those who received Christ, that is to acknowledge Jesus, to confess him as Lord, as the light who has come into the world to save you and rescue you from your sins. To receive Christ is to ally yourself with Christ against your sins, as opposed to our nature, which is to ally with our sins against Christ. It is to confess and to admit that we needed the creator of the world to step into his creation. That's what it took to redeem us from our sins and to rescue us. In short, to receive him is to believe in his name. Not just to believe some facts about Christ. Not just to believe that Jesus was a real person who came at a real point in history and really died on a cross. It is to believe that Jesus is the Word. That He is the light that has come into the world. That all life comes from Him. And that He has come down to purchase salvation for you through His death and through His resurrection. To those to those who humble themselves and receive that message of the gospel, Jesus has given the right to become children of God. I hope that staggers you this morning as we approach Christmas. He's given the privilege, the right to be a child of God. He has given you, if you've come to Him, if you've received Him, if you've believed on His name, the privilege of being adopted into God's family. The Apostle John, the same author here, would write in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, it's like, look at this. What manner of love is this that we should be called children of God? John wrote it here. He still can't believe it by the time he writes 1 John 3. J.I. Packer says this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, 
Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity well at all. He is given the privilege of becoming a child of God. J.I. Packer goes on to say that, that Father is now the Christian name for God. What a wonderful privilege we've been given when we turn to Christ and we receive the status of Christ. That we are a child. We don't become the Son. We are children by adoption. But as those who are united with Christ, we, we share the status as child, as Son. The status is conferred, the text says, not through physical birth, but through being born again by God. It's not of blood. There's not some heritage. There's not some genealogy. There's not some lineage that can save anybody. It doesn't come through blood. It doesn't come through natural descent. That doesn't determine the adoption of God. It's not through human will or exertion. It's of God alone. And if you are interested in that, you might read John 3 this afternoon as you have time when you get home. Jesus is the Word. He's the revelation of God. Jesus is the true light. And lastly, we see that Jesus is grace and truth. Jesus is grace and truth. Look in verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he, the Word, Jesus Christ, has made him known. John has really been building to verse 14. Jesus reveals, or, or we hear now that who is the Word? It's, it's Jesus. It's the one who has taken on flesh. Jesus is coming into the world. He's shined his light on everyone. How has he done this? How has God revealed to us the word? How has he revealed to us God's character and his nature? He has done it by taking on flesh and by dwelling among us. Jesus takes on the fullness of humanity, takes on even the limitations of humanity, except for sin. Maybe weaknesses is a better word. He chose to communicate himself in the clearest possible terms by becoming one of us, by becoming flesh. John's strong language here rules out any other sort of weird view of Christ that he didn't really physically have a body, that he was just sort of like a ghostly premonition. Or that divinity sort of just took up residence in a man called Jesus and happened to do some work through him. No, Jesus, without losing any of his divine essence and divine nature, takes on humanity in order to reveal the glory of God clearly to us. And this is 
as we've been saying, the glory of Christmas. We spend time reflecting on Jesus coming into this world. We celebrate the love of God demonstrating in, demonstrated in revealing the glory of God to us. In the most unique way, I would argue a way that man could not have come up with on their own. We're too selfish. And in a way that demonstrates the true character and nature of Christ, even the humility of God. He didn't just pop in for a visit. He's born a helpless child, taking on our very nature. Again, minus sin. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the book of Exodus, God commanded Israel to build a tabernacle that He might dwell among His people. Later, Moses, outside the camp, would, would build a tent of meeting where he would go and he would speak with the Lord. And all those who sought the Lord would go outside the camp to this tent of meeting. And that Greek word dwelt there is related to the word tabernacle or tent. It's that Jesus pitched his tent or his tabernacle among us. He dwelt among his people in an even clearer fashion than God dwelt among the people of Israel. And as the tent of meeting was a place of revelation where Moses could speak with God and the tabernacle was a demonstration of the presence of God, so Jesus would demonstrate the very presence of God by, by becoming flesh and dwelling among us. John says Jesus became flesh dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. It was like the glory of the only Son from the Father. Now the glory of God is, is the going public of all His worth by displaying His character and His nature and His power. So the Word... Jesus Christ perfectly demonstrates the nature and character of God, so He perfectly displays the glory of God. He perfectly displays the glory of God. When Jesus comes, He shows us the glory of God. And what do we see? What is the disclosure of the nature and character of God? Well, John says it's grace and it's truth. That word truth is Probably something like true to his name, true to his character. It's grace and faithfulness. That he is a kind and a faithful God. We're reminded of when Moses asked the Lord, let me see your glory. And God said, I'll, I'll let you have a glimpse. You can't see me and live. That's why John can say no one has seen God. Nobody's stared full force at the Lord. I'll give you a glimpse but in the book of Exodus, Moses said, let me see your glory, and God says, I'll allow my goodness to pass by you. The goodness of God, the glory of God is the goodness of God gone public. When God shows what He is like, we see that He is a good God and a gracious God and a faithful God. And Jesus has made this as clear as possible. He has made known the Father. He has declared to us what the Father is like, John says at the, at the end of verse 18. I came across these poetic words written a couple centuries ago concerning Christ. Thou art the everlasting Word, the Father's only Son, 
God manifestly seen and heard, and heaven's beloved one. In thee most perfectly expressed, the Father's glory shine, of the full deity possessed, eternally divine. True image of the infinite, whose essence is concealed, brightness of uncreated light, the heart of God revealed. Jesus has shown us the light of the glory of God. He shows us what God is most like. And we see, even as we read from Psalm 145 this morning, what is God like? He's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. And he's abounding in steadfast love. The shining brilliance of the glory of God is then so bright It is so revealing that oftentimes when when Jesus came into the world and as the message of Christ is proclaimed, our instinct is to run from it so as to not be exposed by it. To cling to our Son. But for those who have been born again, we see the light as the revelation of God's kindness and His goodness towards us in Christ Jesus. We see that this light that has come into the world is our only hope for, the salva- for our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins and adoption into God's family. We understand that the only way for us to enjoy God's kindness is to be united with Christ. Jesus, John says there in verse 18, is at the Father's side. King James says he's in the bosom of the Father. He shares a closeness and an intimacy with the Father. And you know what? So do all those who receive Christ, who believe on his name. You are united with Christ, and you are in the bosom of the Father. You share in the intimacy with the Father as he brings you into his family when you come to Christ and you are united with him through faith. You are a friend of God, and you are more than a friend of God. You will become a child of God, adopted by His grace. Now let's consider then the depth of our need that required such a drastic act of God. You know, Jeff made a similar point last week from 1 John 1, and there in ver- all the way through 2 2, about the necessity of the death of Christ. And he made the point that, look, if there was any other way, if there was any other way, it would have been that way. But our sin was so egregious that it took the, the blood, the propitiation, the death of Christ on our behalf. And I think we can make the same point this morning with the necessity of the incarnation. Look what it took. It took God entering creation and doing the work of propitiation on our behalf. What drastic measures were necessary to deliver us from our sin. This season, may we remember all that Christ has done to make us children of God. All necessary because of our helplessness, our inability Our love for the darkness rather than the light. This is what it took. This is what it took for us to know God through Christ. I'm reminded of that great line in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia where 
if you've read it, Lucy and Peter, they, you know, these kids have kind of stumbled into this magical world called, called Narnia. And Lucy and Peter are, are terribly distressed because their brother have, has gone after the way of the wicked witch. And they recognize their own helplessness. And in their own helplessness, they, they cry out, at least Lucy cries out to some long-term residents of Narnia who know what's going on. They know the playing field. They know the ways of the wicked witch. They know the rumors of the Christ figure, a lion named Aslan. And Lucy cries out and she says, Oh, can no one help us? Can no one help us? Only Aslan says Mrs. Beaver. We must go on and meet him. That's our only chance now. That's our only chance now. Only Jesus, who has come into this world to save sinners from their sin. Don't flee from him. Flee to him. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts rejoice as we consider the coming of Christ into this world. And Lord, we must admit our hearts long for his second coming, his return. Lord, may we reflect on all that it took to accomplish our salvation. And may we praise and glorify you that you planned it from the beginning, that Jesus accomplished it in history and the Spirit has applied it to our hearts. Lord, would you open the eyes of, of any here who have not seen the glory of the gospel in Christ Jesus. Draw them to faith. In Jesus' name, amen.